0: Good morning. Good to have all of you here this morning. We're going to continue in our series. We've been uh, kind of looking at um, God's favorite stories, and we've just been looking at some of the parables, some of the stories that Jesus uh, has told. And today we're going to look at a story that's kind of interesting, uh, and I kind of alluded to this last week, in that some Bible commentators kind of see this as a story. That actually happened—a true story. Other Bible commentators kind of view it as a parable uh, that Jesus told. It wasn't a true story, but it was a story that Jesus told in order to make a very, very specific point. And it's the story of the rich man and the beggar. And it's found there in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning in the uh, verse 19. And again, whether you uh, you know believe that this is a true story or it's just uh, parable uh, that Jesus told. Uh, it is a story that nonetheless evokes some very strong emotions from those who heard it, primarily the Pharisees. I'm going to just emphasize that, primarily the Pharisees. And I'm going to say more about that a little bit later. But I want you to pay attention, and I want you to think back if you're, if you're a Bible reader. What was the Pharisees' reaction to much of what Jesus preached and taught. Because you're going to kind of see a similar reaction in here this morning. So it evokes some very, very strong reactions, primarily from the religious community. And due to the fact that the rich man in the story that Jesus tells, but also from others who heard it, because Jesus includes in this story some very disturbing details about the reality and experience of hell. Now, before I read you the story, let me kind of give you the context. Jesus is teaching to those who have kind of gathered to hear him. As a matter of fact, Luke 15, 1, if you've got your Bibles, you can Uh, Just thumb over there really, really quickly and look. Uh, And it tells you who the crowd is that Jesus is teaching to at that moment. He's teaching to sinners and tax collectors. So it kind of gives you the audience that he's addressing at that point. He is talking to sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees and scribes see who Jesus is associating with, that he's talking, he's teaching, he's focusing on them, and they grumble, which is what they always do, regardless what Jesus says or what Jesus uh, teaches about, they grumble, they complain, and they accused Jesus of hanging out with the riffraff of society. If you truly were the Son of God, you would be hanging out with us religious people, not the scum of the earth, not that riffraff. And so Jesus launches out. Now get this. Jesus is, this struck me. Jesus is teaching the tax gatherers and the sinners. The Pharisees, the scribe, the religious crowd is there. They're observing, they're watching, they're listening. But Jesus is speaking to, he is addressing, he is focused on the sinners and the tax gatherers. And Jesus launches into the infamous parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. That is interesting. As he's talking to the lost the sinners, the tax collectors, those who were far from God. He talks about the coin. He talks about the lost sheep, and he talks about the prodigal son. What is interesting here is that these three parables really speak to, and it addresses, God's love And his desire to be in relationship with the very people the Pharisees and scribes have kind of just written off as worthless. Now following these three parables, Jesus begins to teach. Now again, I'm just kind of giving you the context of this. Uh, And this is kind of important to see because I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments. Following those three parables, Jesus begins to teach about the pitfalls of wealth. Now this really piques the interest and it kind of gets the attention of the Pharisees because they believed wealth was proof of a person's righteousness before God. So they were very anxious to kind of see what is Jesus going to say about wealth. And Jesus startles them, again, which is the whole point of parables. It is to startle, it's to kind of evoke a sense of shock among the people who are hearing it. And so they were used to kind of, again, just kind of create tension. So Jesus is teaching um, wealth, and it shocks them about what Jesus says because, as we're going to see, the diseased beggar, now again, they wealth is proof of your righteousness before God. Doesn't matter what else you do. If you're rich, you're righteous before God. That's how they viewed wealth. So in this story that Jesus tells, he does something that is very very shocking to them in that he makes the diseased beggar in the story the one who's rewarded and the rich man is the one who is punished which is the exact opposite of what they believed and expected. So again, these these were designed to evoke very strong emotions. I've been able to do that for the last two weeks. It's been amazing. I mean, we have not had anybody get up and go to the bathroom or get coffee refilled the last two weeks because I have been able to create a tension in this room that people are just kind of like, I think, glued to their seats. I said to Janie, I think I found the answer to kind of keeping people in their seats during the sermon. Create tension. (laughs) So Jesus' is teaching, Luke 16, 14, captures their reaction so far to what Jesus is teaching regarding wealth. The Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all of this and scoffed at Jesus. It is then, at this point, you just don't do that to Jesus. It is at this point Jesus, I mean it's, you know, he's full-fledged parables talking to the lost and then he kind of begins to kind of gradually make this shift. He teaches about wealth and then they scoff at him and Jesus is like, "Okay, you got my attention." He's no longer directing teaching focused on the lost, the far from God crowd. He kind of shifts and focuses on those who think everything with god is hunky dory and it is then that he launches into the story about the rich man and the baker. that's the context and again you can go back and kind of start at luke 15:1 and you'll come to the same conclusion so beginning in verse 19 jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived in luxury Uh, Each day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him, Lazarus, to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment." But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is without a doubt a pretty tough message. Now again, it's important to understand this story was directly aimed at the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious, the self-righteous, the ones who thought they were in right standing with God. Again, when Jesus is addressing and he's talking to and ministering to the lost, to the sinners, to the tax gatherers, um, Jesus is telling them stories about lost things and lost people being found. I love that. When it came to the lost, Jesus isn't telling them stories that are evoking strong emotions uh, and, and, and scoffing at him. Jesus, when he is addressing the lost, the far from God, he's telling them stories about lost things and lost people being the shepherd, the woman, the father, all represent God in the parables there in Luke 15. The sheep, the coin, the prodigal, all represented the sinners and the tax gatherers. And one of the differences between the sinners and the tax gatherers and the scribes and the Pharisees is the sinners, the tax gatherers, all knew they were lost and far from God. You didn't have to tell them that, they knew. They were lost and that they were far from God. So it's interestingly, when Jesus is addressing and speaking to them, he tells them three parable stories that were meant to inspire, to give them hope in knowing that their heavenly father was diligently searching for them and he would not give up until they were found. Isn't that interesting? Whereas the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious community that were kind of there witnessing this teaching in Luke 15 that Jesus is giving to the lost, they believed they were found. They they believed they were the ones that were right with God. And then here's our wealth to prove it. Don't believe me? Look in my wallet. When actually they were more lost and more distant from God than the sinners and the tax gatherers. So again, Jesus' approach to these two groups is very stark, and it is very different. So when Jesus turns his attention away from the sinners, the tax gatherers, those who knew that they were lost and distant from God, and he just kind of brings the spotlight on the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus tells them a story that has some very shocking implications. And again, in this story, Jesus includes some horrific details about hell you don't find in any other portion of scripture. Here's the point. I find it extremely interesting. When Jesus preaches and teaches about the reality and the experience of hell, He does not direct it where you think he should, towards the sinners, the tax gatherers, those who are lost and far and distant from God. He doesn't do that. Rather, he tells them stories that would spark interest, hope in their heart that their heavenly Father is searching diligently for them, and he is not going to give up until they are found. And he saves. Now get this. He saves the shocking story, the one about hell, the one about specific details about hell. He saves it for the ones who thought they were right with God. And I'm sure they heard the other story, those of the lost, you know, those who are distant from God, they're listening in on, as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. But they also knew that it was directed at and meant for them and not for the lost. Now, from an evangelistic viewpoint, I find that interesting because most of us have been taught and led to believe that the message of hell and damnation is for the sinner. I mean, isn't that, I mean, you look at most Bible tracts that you give to a person who is lost, and they're very graphic and very descriptive of hell. But Jesus, that isn't the message he gives to the lost, to the sinners, to those who are distant from God. Rather, he tells them stories about lost things, lost people, and a heavenly father who is diligently searching for them. And he saves the message of hell, the experience of hell, details about hell, and he saves that for the religious crowd. Again, from an evangelistic viewpoint, I just find that interesting. Now, if you go back into the scriptures, which I did, and look, you'll find more often than not, when Jesus taught about the reality and the experience of hell, do you realize it was usually to his disciples I'll let that sink in because I know for some of you this is rearranging furniture because, again, you think the message of hell is for the lost. I'm just not so sure. Doesn't seem to be who Jesus directs that message to. So when Jesus taught about the reality of the experience of hell, it was usually to his disciples, the ones who would carry forth his ministry Following his ascension to the Father when the Holy Spirit would come, we're just going to kind of pick up where Jesus left off. So he kind of saves that teaching about the reality and experience of hell. He kind of saves that for those who were his followers. Interesting. The parable of the sheep and the goat was told to the disciples. Go back and look it up. Followers of Jesus. He tells the story of the sheep and goat. Sheep are gonna go into uh, eternal you know, comfort, heaven. The goats are gonna go into a place uh, of torment, of eternal torment, of eternal punishment. He, he saves that story. He saves that teaching for his disciples. Parable of the talents, which resulted in one of them being bound and thrown out into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, a reference to hell was told to his disciples. He he doesn't use it in Luke 15 when he's got a crowd of lost people who are distant from God. Jesus doesn't whip out the story of the sheep and the goat in that context. He saves that teaching for his disciples, for his followers. Interesting. If you're not connecting the dots, I'll do that for you in a minute. Parable of the wedding dinner in, in Matthew 22, where the man is found by the king not to be in wedding attire, Know that what happens there? We talked about this parable. He is thrown into outer darkness. There's weeping of gnashing and teeth. Again, this parable, if you go back and look it up, and I, I hope you will, was directly aimed at the Pharisees, the religious community, not the lost, not the sinners. That's interesting. Yet when it comes to Jesus talking to and being with the lost, The sinners, the tax gatherers, those who knew they were lost, knew they were far from their Heavenly Father, Jesus, more often than not, told them stories that were more hopeful. When they were caught in sin, the lost, the distant from God, like that woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus, more often than not, exhibited compassion toward them. When the self-righteous, the religious people were caught in sin, Jesus would refer to them as vipers, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and and other less favorable terms That, that oftentimes we reserve and use in the Christian church community for the lost. Jesus doesn't do that. See, I'm inclined to believe the message of hell and damnation isn't so much for the sinner as much as it is for the self-righteous, for the religious, for the Pharisee type, the scribe types and disciples and followers of Jesus. going let that sink in. I've gotten a lot of pushback from this Talked about hell the last couple of Sundays. Haven't done it for 10 years. Did it for two Sundays, and I've gotten an incredible amount of pushback. I'm going to tell you why I'm doing this. This is what Jesus did. This is who the message is for. It's for us. Had somebody that said, what are you preaching about this Sunday? I told him what I was preaching about. Said, I'm getting tired of hearing that. I said, then go somewhere else. Well, what, what do you what do you mean? I said, you're acting like a Pharisee. And Jesus had no compassion for the Pharisees. I have no compassion for the Pharisees. Go somewhere else. If you don't like this, if you scoff at this, are you acting more like a Pharisee? Check your heart. Because I'm inclined to believe the message of hell, the experience of hell and damnation is meant not so much for the sinner, for the lost, the distant from God, as much as I think it is for the self-righteous, the religious people, and the followers and disciples of Jesus. Again, if you go back and look at scriptures, and I hope you will, Jesus seems to direct the message of the reality and experience of hell and damnation toward the self-righteous, the religions ones, the ones who thought they were right with God, and toward his disciples, not the lost. Jesus' message to the lost is always designed to give them a sense of hope, of encouragement. It's like a lifeline to them that while they were lost and knew it, there was the hope, the encouragement that their heavenly father was looking diligently for them, and he's not going to give up. He's not going to stop until you are found. Listen to something. William Booth, I, I referenced William Booth. I'm becoming a big fan of William Booth. Listen to something William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once said. He said, if I had my way, I wouldn't send my missionaries to seminary to learn theology. I would send them to hell for five minutes. Because if they spent five minutes in hell, then they would come back the evangelists that they were supposed to be. Are you kind of getting like William Booth too? Could it be, and I'm just positing the question, could it be that Jesus taught his disciples followers about the reality and experience of hell so that we would be so motivated beyond our own salvation, beyond our own comfort, beyond our own eternal security to keep reaching out to the lost with the good news of the gospel. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, once described his mission as comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable Perhaps Jesus, and again, I'm just positing the thought, perhaps Jesus intended the reality and experience of hell as a means of afflicting us in our mission to reach out to the lost and not become too comfortable and complacent with the fact that we are saved and one day going to heaven and totally lose sight of and care for the eternal fate of the lost. I read recently at a large gathering of pastors, one of the main speakers was talking about the fact that preachers really don't mention anything about hell from the pulpit. And I made my confession last week. I've been here for over 10 years, and I've never, ever, once really ever taught in any depth on the reality or the experience of hell. That is not right. And I will not repeat that mistake again. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to talk on it every Sunday. Amen. Amen. So he asked this large gathering of pastors this question. He said, how many of you have preached on hell? Over 10,000 pastors gathered in that room, and as he scanned the room, there were very few hands raised. In one prominent seminary, 46% of seminary students, future pastors said they thought that preaching on the subject of hell is in poor taste. See, a lot of people can't handle the whole counsel of God's word. They can talk about heaven, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's kindness is good. We can talk about that all the time. And we talk about that a lot here, and we should. It's a great thing. But they just don't mention hell. The message of hell I mean, if it upsets you, if it just causes you uh, to to just kind of scoff, you may have a lot more in common with the Pharisees than you may realize. Think on that. If the message of hell gets under your skin, it got under their skin. If the message of hell agitates you, it agitated them. If the message of hell is offensive to you, it was offensive to them. Your reaction to the message of hell may say a lot about where you are spiritually. And I'm talking to the the, uh, saved. I'm talking to the Christians in here. If you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you don't know God, he's looking for you. He loves you. And he's going to keep looking for you diligently until he finds you. So you just meditate on that and we'll kind of keep talking what we're talking about here. Like I said last week, Jesus and the Apostle Paul talked about hell and the destruction of the wicked more than they did on the subject of heaven and forgiveness combined. Jesus loved us enough to talk about grace and his mercy. And, and who our heavenly father was. He loved us enough to tell us those things. He also loved us enough to tell us about the reality and the experience of hell. Do you realize that most of Paul's letters to the churches were filled with reminders? We talked about this last week. Were filled with reminders of the fate of the wicked, the ungodly, and the unrighteous. So the church, that's who the letters went to. These weren't tracts that were passed out to the lost, to the far from God. Paul's letters circulated among the churches. And in those letters, he was very clear and very instructive of the fate of the lost, of the ungodly, of the unrighteous. If Paul cared enough, about the loss to include teaching and preaching and instruction on the experience and reality of hell. Shouldn't we care enough to talk about that in the midst of our church community? I believe that Paul included that in the letter to the churches because Paul did not want the body of Christ to lose focus to never forget the fate that was awaiting many unsaved people and that that experience reality of hell would begin to motivate them to never forsake the preaching and teaching of the good news. If we don't consider the reality and the experience of hell and the fact that there are people, they're gonna spend eternity there And it is a place of torment and punishment. It would be very easy. It's very tempting. I told you, I got drug kicking and screaming into these last three messages. I'd much rather talk about the love, the mercy, the grace of God. But we're we're a full gospel church. I talk to some people, and it's almost like they've kind of got a version of the Bible I call cut and paste. Cut out the parts you like. Throw away the parts you don't. We talk about, remember Booth said, you know what? One of those departure points of churches, if they're not experiencing renewal and revival, one of the six departure points is they'll begin to preach heaven without hell. I don't want to be that kind of a church. I want to be a full gospel church. We talk about the, you know, awesome stuff. We also talk about the tough stuff. Again, it would be easy and tempting just to focus on happier things. Heaven, prosperity, blessings, joy, peace. There's nothing wrong with those thoughts and those truths. We just need to remember that there are those out there who need to hear the message of salvation, and it is our commission, our mandate to do that. So I think we need to understand to a degree what hell is really like, and to begin to contemplate and to understand what is at stake for the unsaved. There is a lot riding on this for those who don't know Jesus, and folks, we cannot take this lightly. I remember one time, not too long ago, Janie and I were talking to a Christian man and somehow the topic of homosexuality came up and the man said, those people are going to hell. And he said it in a way that he just couldn't have been happier about it. It didn't bother him or concern him in any way. As a matter of fact, he just seemed quite glad. To me, if you really understood the reality, the experience of what hell is really like, I don't believe you would want that for anyone, regardless of who they are or what they've done. I believe it mattered to Jesus. I believe it bothered Jesus that there were people who were going to spend eternity in a place of darkness and torment. It's one of the reasons why he came. Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come to give you life, zoe. We talked about that last week. And I've come to give that to you in abundance. He said in John 12.46, he says, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Jesus describes hell as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not so that you and I, our reaction to that can be, oh, that's a shame. That's just too bad. Probably deserve it. But thank God it's them and not me. Can Jesus tell us about that? His followers, his disciples Because he wants you and I to know how high the stakes are. There are are souls that hang in the balance. There are destinies at stake here, eternal destinies. And Jesus instructs his followers about the reality and the experience of hell so that it would motivate us to not become complacent, but to understand what awaits those who are lost and just say, we got to do something. I know. Let's start sharing stories with them about lost things and lost people. And let's let's tell them about a God who loves them so much and is diligently searching for them. And he's not going to give up until he finds you. That's how much he loves you. That's primarily, I think, what the message of hell is and why Jesus primarily shares it with his disciples and his followers. So we would never lose sight of what awaits those who are lost. That's why I say I believe the message of hell isn't so much for the lost that we can use that to condemn them. The message of hell is directed more toward the believer to motivate us to reach out because God loves them, we love them, and we don't want to see anyone spend eternity in a place like hell. One of the aspects of hell's description, you get kind of from Jesus' story in Luke 16, is that hell is a place of separation. You go back and read that story, there, there's, there's a chasm that divides them, and, and one cannot cross over, the other can't, so that there's this separation. So you kind of get this idea that, that hell is a place of separation. Uh, Jesus says the rich man is in Hades. As I said last week, that is a place where the uh, ungodly, wicked, unrighteous people go. They're awaiting the day of judgment uh, based on Jesus' description. Hades is a place of torment. Uh, it says the beggar is in Abraham's bosom. Again, that is the place where the godly, the righteous saints, they're, they go there. They're awaiting again, the day of judgment, to receive their resurrected bodies, to receive uh, their eternal uh, rewards. It's not heaven, but it is a place of comfort. Um, And Jesus says there's this chasm again, this almost gulf um, between the rich man and the beggar, and that they cannot cross to the other side. They can see each other, but they just cannot cross to the other side. Now, again, hell is not only... Company and eternal association with the wicked, the ungodly, and the unrighteous. So, that is one aspect of hell is that you're going to be there with some of the most ungodly, wicked, unrighteous people that have ever lived. Okay, that's one part of the separation. The other aspect of that separation is you are going to be totally separated from the godly, from the righteous, from the presence of God. Revelation 21, verse 8, gives us an idea of who will be in hell. And he says there, this is John giving the revelation. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral people and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So he's giving you kind of there a description of the kinds of people that are going to be occupying hell. So you'll be surrounded by these kinds of wicked, ungodly, unrighteous people, but at the same time, you're also going to be separated, which is just another aspect of hell. You're going to be separated from the godly, the righteous, the redeemed, and you are going to be separated completely from the presence of God. I think it was Mark Twain who once said, I'll take heaven for the comfort and hell for the company. Clearly, here is a man who understands nothing about the reality and experience of hell. Do you realize, I'm talking to the both saved and unsaved here now, do you realize that every one of us in this room is richly benefiting from experiencing the presence of God and we have throughout our entire lives and we will continue to experience the presence of God until the day we die or Jesus returns. Every one of us, Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, every one of us in this room, every person on the face of the earth is benefiting from God's presence upon the earth. There are many, many untold blessings we experience on a daily basis just by virtue of God's presence upon this earth. And that is just as true for the believer as it is for those who adamantly do not believe in God. Now for the unbeliever they may not be experiencing God's love in the capacity they could if they were in right relationship with God but they are experiencing aspects and dimensions of God's love in partial ways even though they may not acknowledge it or understand it. In hell, there will be a complete separation from God's love and God's presence that they have never experienced before because God's love has always been here in some capacity. None of us knows what it is to be totally separated from God's love. I I think Jesus experienced that on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time he'd never been in relationship with his heavenly father. I think he understood as full as a human being could be what it was to be separated from his heavenly father. None of us know what that totally feels like because it's always been there for us in some measure. None of us knows from human experience what it is to be totally separated from God's grace, from his goodness, his kindness, his patience, his mercy, because it's always been with us, operating in our lives in some measure, whether we recognized or acknowledged it, believe in it, or even care. Hell is a place where the unbeliever will finally realize with weeping and gnashing of teeth, that they are now finally, completely, eternally, forever cut off and separated from God's presence, His nature, His attributes were a part of their lives, were for a part of their lives, they were benefiting from it in measured ways but never realized it look at what paul says in romans 1 beginning in verse 20 he said forever for since forever since the world was created people have seen the earth and sky how many of you have seen the earth and sky good through everything god made earth and sky they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature If you're a hunter in here, uh, I'm probably talking more maybe to more men than I am women, but I know there are some women hunters in here. If your spouse is upset about all the time you spend hunting, you just need to change the wording. Rather than, I'm going hunting, I am going to go out and I am going to contemplate the invisible qualities, the eternal power, and the divine nature of God. I'll be back in a couple of hours. But Paul is saying here, he says, that is one of the blessings every person, both the wicked and the righteous, the godly and the ungodly, every one of us experiences. God's invisible quality, his eternal power, and his divine nature simply through the world he has created. These are the benefits. There are benefits in that for everyone. The difference comes down to whether we choose to acknowledge and respond to God in that or not. Every sunrise, every sunset is just one of the many ways all of mankind is experiencing God's eternal power. He causes the sun to rise. He causes the sun to set. When you're watching that, you are witnessing God's eternal power. Hell will be a complete separation from all of that. And I'm telling you, no one will realize how profound that is until they are without it. And that, to me, will be the part of that eternal torment, the mental anguish they will experience because they will come to recognize it, but they're unable to respond to it. Now they have the ability to recognize it and respond to it. But Paul said many of them suppress that truth in unrighteousness. There's going to come a day where they will not be able to suppress that truth any longer. The truth will be very, very evident, but they won't be able to do anything about it. And that will be part of that mental torment, that anguish The association of the wicked of hell, the presence of eternal torment, separation from God's people and God's presence was so profound to the rich man that in verse 27, what does he do? He begged Abraham, would you please send Lazarus and warn my five brothers so that they too do not end up in this place of torment. Now you can take this, you know, the fate of the rich man, you can take you know, the flames, you can take all of that liter- literally or figuratively, but we have got to take it seriously. I don't care if you take this story literally or figuratively, please take it seriously. That's why Jesus tells it. Do we care about the lost? Do we have that same passion that Jesus had? Our understanding of hell. Folks, it should motivate us. It should light a fire, no pun intended, should light a fire under us to reach out to the lost with the good news of the gospel. Our message to the saved, or the unsaved, our message to the unsaved should focus on the good news of the gospel. I know people say, well, well, shouldn't we we share heaven? Shouldn't we share God's love? Absolutely, that is the message you share with them. That is our message. His love for humanity expressed in Jesus coming to earth, that he came and he died for you. His blood was shed for your sins, He shed his blood so that your sins could be washed away and you could be forgiven and you could be declared in right standing with God through what Jesus has done for us. Yes, that is our message to the unsaved. Our motivation, our motivation should be in part the reality and the experience of hell that awaits those who die in their sins, and outside of a relationship with their heavenly Father. And one of the things that we celebrate every Sunday, and we're gonna do that formally here this morning, again, is communion. See, to to the saved, it is a declaration of his love for you. Jesus said, every time you do this, every time you contemplate that my body was broken, do do it remembering me. I did that because I love you. It's his declaration of love for you. Every time you take the juice, which represents the blood of the eternal covenant, it says that blood was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Every time you do it, think on that, contemplate. Be mindful, your blood was shed for me so that I could experience forgiveness, that I could be declared right with God. That is his declaration to the saved. It is also an invitation to the unsaved. Look at what God has done for you. There is no greater example, demonstration of love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. See, it's a declaration to the saved. It's an invitation to the unsaved. If you're here this morning and and, and you're saved, just come and and declare once again God's great love for you is demonstrated in the broken body, the shed blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and, and you're distant, you're lost, you're far from God this morning, I want you to see this. This is an invitation. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and worn out. I will give you rest. This is an invitation to rest to forgiveness, to cleansing, to healing of mind, body, and soul. So I just ask you this morning, prepare your hearts. Are you here this morning? Are you here to declare his love, or are you here this morning to receive his love? If you're here this morning to declare his love, I'm going to invite the worship team. You guys can come back up here on the stage. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're a Christian. You've responded to God's invitation this morning, communion for you. It's just a declaration of God's love for you. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Mark, are you and Cassie, are you guys doing communion? Okay, I'm going to have Mark and Cassie here. I would like for you two to kind of be here too. If you're here this morning and you're lost, we got good news for you this morning. You have a God who's crazy about you. You have a God who is so in love with you, and his love for you is so great that he sent his one and only begotten son that whosoever just puts their faith, their trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the invitation. And Jesus was so committed to that invitation that he went to the cross and his body and his blood was broken and shed for you this morning as an invitation to come to him. So I want to invite you this morning. I'm going to have Dan and Neva on one side, Mark and Cassie on the other side. Got communion servers here. For those of you that are Christians, you can go and declare God's love over you. If you're here this morning and you're lost, uh, we we would say don't take communion. Paul says that when you do that in an unworthy manner, you're just eating and drinking damnation unto yourself. We don't want you to do that. But if you're here this morning and you just want to receive Jesus Christ, you want to know what it is to have a relationship with God, these are the people you want to see. And after you've seen them and you've kind of, you know, done business with God, then it's very appropriate to go and to have his love declared over you. But don't do that without first inviting it. Amen? Father, we just thank you so much this morning. God, I just pray, Lord, again, that you would just stir our hearts. God, I pray, Lord, that there just not be a a pharisaical response to this message where we just scoff, we dismiss it, we explain it away. But, God, that we would be motivated, that it would stir within us a desire, a need to go and to share the good news of the gospel, just like Jesus did with those who were lost and distant from God. So God, stir up within us. And God, I pray, Lord, this week, for those of us here that are Christians, God, I just pray, Lord, you would put people in our path, Father, that you would just, again, create divine opportunities, Lord, that we can reach out to and just share this incredible message of your unconditional love with those who don't know you. And that, God, this would motivate us to reach out and to not quit reaching out. So again, Father, I just thank you, Lord. Again, just stir our hearts. Draw us ever closer to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.